I'm Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Welcome to Evidence-Based Hair for the March 28, 2022 issue, Season 1, Episode 8. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and addresses new research in the field of hair loss. We'll use our time together not only to talk about what's new, but to reflect together on exactly how this new information ties into what we've come to learn in the past. We'll also consider where we're heading as a hair loss community in the future. I'll use various studies as a pivot point to discuss key diagnostic pearls and treatment tips that hopefully allow us to provide better care to our patients. Each week there'll be one or two topics that I may dive a little deeper into. These are topics that I'd like you to know about. And for those training with me through the Donovan Hair Academy, these are essential topics. This podcast was created for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. This podcast was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The fourth Monday of each month is dedicated to a variety of topics and today we'll talk about seven studies from the past month or two related to hair loss. We'll begin by talking about minoxidil and breastfeeding. Is minoxidil safe for mothers who are breastfeeding? We'll go on to talk about an uncommon side effect from those using masks for COVID-19 and that's trichorexis nodosa. We've heard about a whole number of side effects, including seborrheic dermatitis, rosacea, acne, various types of irritation. Trichorexis nodosa should be on the list too. Then we'll talk about prepubertal hair loss. You might be comfortable making a diagnosis of androgenetic hair loss in someone 18, 22, 44. What about someone six or seven? We'll talk about prepubertal hair loss. And then we'll talk about syphilis. Syphilis is a great imitator. It can cause diffuse hair loss. and can also cause an alopecia areata-like presentation, often called moth-eaten presentation. We'll talk about a patient with syphilis who presented with diffuse hair loss, and that was her only finding. And we'll talk about the knowledge of dermatologists and dermatology residents when it comes to trichoscopy. How good are we as a medical specialty? Then we'll conclude with two studies. One looking at hair follicle counts. Is there a difference in the number of hair follicles per square centimeter in the crown, in the front, in the sides, and in the back? We'll come to see that the temporal parietal scalp has the lowest density. And then we'll talk about a fascinating study which addresses exactly what happens when hair fibers fall out of the canal. And we'll see that in some cases, hair follicle stem cells are triggered to die. It's a fascinating study that I look forward to reviewing with you. The references for all of these studies are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So let's talk about minoxidil and breastfeeding. Is minoxidil safe during breastfeeding? Well, first let me mention that minoxidil is contraindicated during pregnancy. In other words, mothers who are pregnant should not be using minoxidil. Topical minoxidil use during pregnancy has risks to the baby. It may affect heart, brain, various vascular issues. It's not really clear at what cutoff time point that occurs. And we do know that these side effects do not happen in all mothers universally. But 
It is absolutely essential that pregnant women not be using minoxidil. Infants born to mums that have used minoxidil during pregnancy may not only have heart, brain, and vascular problems, but can show excessive hair growth or hypertrichosis. So we need to make sure that all women of childbearing age know not to be using minoxidil during pregnancy. But what about during breastfeeding? There are several organizations, including the American Academy of Dermatology and the American Academy of Pediatrics, that have stated in various publications that minoxidil is probably safe for mums that are breastfeeding. An interesting study from 1985 reminds us that minoxidil is probably okay for most infants if their mothers are breastfeeding. Now, Trub and colleagues very recently published a nice report which kind of brings us back to this subject. Should we be giving all mothers the okay to start minoxidil for their own hair loss and continue breastfeeding their baby? Well, Trub reported an infant with hypertrichosis after her mum was using 5% topical minoxidil twice daily. Hair growth was noted on the baby at two months of age. But what's really interesting about this study is that the baby was born four weeks premature, was quite small, and the baby was of Syrian origin. And the reason that's important is because the darker the skin color, the greater the risks of hypertrichosis, we think, especially hypertrichosis from minoxidil. When the mother stopped the topical minoxidil, all of the hair went away, and the hair was mostly on the forehead and in the temples, but moving quite a bit down on the face. So this is a helpful reminder. It reminds us that minoxidil probably is okay for most mothers who are breastfeeding, but perhaps we have to think twice about babies that are premature, and perhaps we have to think twice about certain racial backgrounds where hypertrichosis may be more likely. We don't know the answer. Fortunately, it's reversible, and fortunately, it doesn't seem like there's any other negative side effect of having this hypertrichosis. Certainly, we need more studies to guide us on exactly what are the recommendations for breastfeeding, but it seems for most babies that they will not be negatively affected by mothers who are using minoxidil. Now, I recommend that if mothers are going to use minoxidil, that they wait for a month, maybe even six to eight weeks. There's something very special about the first month of a baby's life, it's a very delicate time, and my feeling has been for a long time that I would rather mothers start up minoxidil after the first month, and even two. But again, there's no good guidelines for this, but for now, it does seem that if a baby's born premature, or there's any aspects about a baby that suggest it might be a little bit more delicate, fragile, perhaps hold off on minoxidil for a bit. That uh, is without a lot of good evidence behind it, but hypertrichosis can occur in some babies if mothers are breastfeeding. So let's talk about a mask-related side effect next. And the side effect here is trichorexis nodosa. We've heard a lot about mask side effects during COVID-19. We've heard about the itching they cause, the ear pain they cause, the redness, the dryness, the increased risk of acne, rosacea, and seborrheic dermatitis. Are there any hair side effects to include in this ever-increasing list of side effects from wearing a mask? Well, trichorexis nodosa may be one of them, and I'd like to review an interesting report. This was published in JAD Case Reports in March. So what is trichorexis nodosa? Well, it is a fraying of hair or a fracture of hair such that the hair becomes broken. And if you take two paintbrushes and push them together, that creates the so-called paintbrush sign 
And that is what we see under the microscope of Trichorexis nodosa. It looks as though there are two paintbrushes pushed together. And that, of course, is the site where hairs fracture. And so an interesting study in JAD case reports described a 31-year-old man who presented to clinic with concerns about facial hair. For eight months, he had concerns about his beard. His beard was breaking, the hairs were breaking, they were une un uneven length hairs, they had multiple white dots. But this phenomenon of hair breaking and white dots was only in the beard. Scalp was fine, eyebrows were fine, body hair was fine. It was thought that maybe he has seborrheic dermatitis, he was given triamcinolone lotion, didn't improve. When he was examined in clinic, an up-close exam of these little specks or flecks or nodes showed that they had very specific findings, and these were findings of Trichorexis nodosa. So this is a free report online, and the report and the images are available free. And so you may want to check it out if you're interested in it. This particular gentleman had all these flecks on the hairs, and these were the sites where the hair breaks, little white dots. And when you examined these hairs up close, they showed the paintbrush sign. They showed the appearance as though two paintbrushes were squished together. And that's the site of fraying, and that's Trichorexis nodosa. So the patient worked as a barber, and because of COVID-19, he was wearing a face mask, and he had been doing this for about nine months prior to presentation. After this condition was diagnosed, he changed his mask to a mask that was less likely to cause this, and he was encouraged to keep his hands off his face because part of the reason these hairs were breaking was because it was thought that he was manipulating his mask often, touching it, adjusting it, pulling on hairs, fracturing hairs. And so the final diagnosis was Trichorexis nodosa from mask use. So we not only have acne, rosacea, seborrheic dermatitis, ear pain, redness, dryness, we've got Trichorexis nodosa on our list of mask-related side effects. So when you see white dots or flecks on hairs, what do you have to think about? We saw here we have to think about Trichorexis nodosa. You have to think about other things too. You have to think about a fungal infection, white pedra. You have to think about hair casts. You have to think about pediculosis. You have to think about Trichorexis invaginata, which is a genetic syndrome as part of Netherton's. And you have to think about seborrheic dermatitis. Any inflammatory condition can cause these hair casts to kind of sit on the hair. And so we have to have a pretty broad differential when we see these white hairs. Using your trichoscope to look at the hairs pays off immensely because you can make many of these diagnoses. You can see trichorexis invaginata. You can get a better understanding about hair casts. You can move them around to see if they're fixed as they might be in pediculosis or movable. And you might be able to diagnose trichorexis nodosa. It's important for those who are training to be aware of the categorization of trichorexis nodosa. When you see trichorexis nodosa under the, under the trichoscope, you can't jump to the conclusion and say, ah, oh, you're touching your hair and wearing a mask. There are five categories of trichorexis nodosa. One is a congenital form, where this finding in the hair starts soon after birth, sometimes gets better with age, but doesn't always. And so these individuals have more fragile hair. It's congenital. Then there's a secondary form where there's a variety of genetic syndromes. And these are what dermatology residents are always tested on. Arginosuccinic aciduria, citrullinemia, uh, manilothrix, trichothiodystrophy, Netherton's, Menke's, biotinidase deficiency. These are all secondary genetic 
syndromes that can cause trichorexis nodosa. You can also get trichorexis nodosa from repeat trauma on hair. Too much heat, too much chemical, too much rubbing, too much friction, too much manipulation, too much scratching. This can all cause trichorexis nodosa. That's the third category. There are systemic diseases that can cause trichorexis nodosa, like iron deficiency and hypothyroidism. And then there are some medications, methotrexates, some TNF inhibitors, MEK inhibitors. These have all been implicated in medications causing trichorexis nodosa. So when you see trichorexis nodosa, you have to think to yourself, I wonder what this could be due to. Most commonly, it's from trauma. Too much heat, too much chemicals, too much friction, too much rubbing. The hair is damaged, but you have to think about these other causes as well. And if you don't, you'll miss them. So let's shift gears and talk a little bit about pediatrics. How comfortable are you in diagnosing androgenetic hair loss in, let's say, an 18-year-old? An 18-year-old who comes in with his parents, you see hair loss in the central scalp, in the crown, there's miniaturization. Seems possible. How comfortable are you in a 12-year-old? How comfortable are you in a 6-year-old? As the age starts decreasing, we get a little bit more apprehensive about is this really androgenetic hair loss? So let's talk about prepubertal hair loss, which is hair loss basically before 10. And a very interesting study in clinical and experimental dermatology brings us to this topic. One of the earlier studies that this paper builds on is a 2005 study by Tosti and colleagues. In 2005, Tosti and colleagues reported 20 prepubertal children with androgenetic hair loss. There was 12 girls, 8 boys, the age range was 6 to 10, normal blood tests, normal physical development, these were healthy children. They mainly had thinning of the central part and the crown, and in 8 children there was some frontal accentuation of the hair loss as well. In Tosti's paper, she points out that all of these children had strong family histories. 9 children had one parent and 11 had both affected. Now, Trube and colleagues in this more recent report from Clinical and Experimental Dermatology give us another case series of children with prepubertal androgenetic hair loss. There were 74 patients in his study, 59 girls, 15 boys, all had hair loss before 10. In both boys and girls, there was a diffuse pattern of hair thinning in the upper biparietal and also in the vertex region, and none of these children had any kind of endocrine issue at all. They were healthy. There was a family history of androgenetic hair loss, but it wasn't quite as marked or striking as in Tosti's 2005 paper. In Trube's paper, 40% of boys had a pretty strong family history, and 61% of girls had a pretty strong family history. How was it treated? Minoxidil. And minoxidil helped all of these children, whether male or female. So I think this is a helpful study. It reminds us that androgenetic hair loss, or whether you want to call it prepubertal hair loss, can occur. That if you're seeing a 7-year-old, 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old with miniaturization, central hair loss, that it's on your list. We certainly have to rule out telogen effluvium, rule out diffuse forms of alopecia areata, rule out trichotillomania, rule out other things that may be relevant. There are rare genetic syndromes that can cause thinning as well, so a really good history about development, the teeth, the nails, sweating, 
family history is really, really important when you're dealing with hair loss in a six-year-old. And you're going to commit something to paper that's going to be with them as a diagnosis for the next 80, 90, 100, 120 years. Hypotrichosis simplex is another genetic syndrome where children start developing thinning, age five, six, seven, and they go on to be pretty thin in their 30s. And it can look like genetic hair loss. The eyebrows, eyelashes, body hair is normal. Most of the time, these children have a family history. It's autosomal dominantly inherited, but it can be sporadic. So really good history is needed, but prepubertal hair loss is very much uh, within the diagnostic toolbox for someone presenting with hair thinning before age 10. So a really helpful study. From pediatrics, let's move to infectious diseases and talk about syphilis. Syphilis is a subject that we really need to know about. It's a subject we don't talk a lot about in the hair loss world, but syphilis is a great imitator. And in fact, when it comes to the skin and dermatology, there are three great imitators. Syphilis, sarcoidosis, which is an inflammatory condition, and leprosy, which is an infectious disease. And dermatologists are well aware that these conditions can mimic anything. And I can think of many cases where everyone's stumped and no one knows what the patient has. And you just shout out, you know what, you have to consider syphilis, sarcoidosis, and leprosy. And voila, it's often one of these. Of course, it's not always that simple, but these conditions need to be kept in mind that they imitate so many things. Tuberculosis also is a great imitator. Perineoplastic syndrome from underlying cancer is also a great imitator. So when you're stumped, syphilis, sarcoidosis, leprosy, perineoplastic syndrome, tuberculosis, these need to be kept in mind. It's amazing how often you'll be right with super tough cases. But let's talk about syphilis. A study from Japan reports a 20-year-old female who presented with a one-month history of hair loss. It was a diffuse hair loss. She was treated with topical steroids, didn't get better. Examination showed a non-scarring hair loss. It was in the front, it was in the temples, it was in the parietal area. Looked like a telogen effluvium. Trichoscopy showed yellow dots, vellus hairs. Patient was healthy. No lymphadenopathy, nails were normal, mucous membranes were normal. It was the suspicions of the clinicians that led to the diagnosis of syphilis. They sent off lab tests for RPR, or rapid plasma reagent, which is a non-specific test for syphilis, and it came back positive. They went on to order two specific tests, the treponema pallidum hemagglutinin assay test and the absorption test, and these were positive. And the diagnosis was syphilis. The patient was treated. She was treated with amoxicillin. That's a common treatment in Japan. Benzathine penicillin G is not as available in Japan as it is in North America, and her hair grew back. So let's talk about syphilis for a minute. It's a really important subject for clinicians to know about and practitioners to know about if you're going to treat hair loss. Syphilis can present with patchy hair loss, kind of looking like alopecia areata. It's often said to be a moth-eaten form. We'll take a look at what that means in a minute. But it can present with telogen effluvium. So when you have a patient with telogen effluvium, all the blood tests come back normal. No one can figure out why the patient has telogen effluvium. Why are you shedding? You shouldn't be shedding. You have to keep syphilis on your list. It's good to take a history. Are there risk factors for syphilis? We'll talk about this in a minute. But you have to have a pretty low threshold for ordering syphilis tests. And sometimes I'll just say to patients that 
this is a pretty standard panel that we do. We order iron, thyroid, B12, we order zinc. When we're stumped, we order sometimes a biopsy, sometimes we order syphilis tests. And so you want to consider it. If you don't have syphilis in the back of your mind, you're going to miss some cases because it's a great imitator. There's a lot of free online pictures of syphilis of the scalp in various journals that are available with no charge under Creative Commons license. They show this patchy type hair loss, often described as moth-eaten hair loss. I really don't love the term moth-eaten because I don't have a lot of things in my world that are moth-eaten that I can look to and say, ah, that makes sense. But moth-eaten is the term. It's sort of like when you look at it, it's as though the patient ha was trying to get a razor buzz cut and the razor kind of nicked all over. It didn't do a good job doing a smooth job. Or when you look at it, you think, this is like alopecia areata, but there's all these little tiny spots all over and it. it's regrowing. So it seems like it's regrowing. Or when you look at it, you think, this is alopecia areata, but it's going to take a long time for me to do steroid injections. There's so many of these little spots. It's going to take a while. When you have that in your mind, you know, you really have to be thinking about syphilis. It can look very similar to alopecia areata with this moth-eaten or patchy appearance. Often on the back of the scalp and the sides, but it can occur anywhere and it can have this diffuse form which occurs all over. And so syphilis is an infection due to a bacteria called Treponema pallidum. It's a sexually transmitted disease. And since 1924, it's been a reportable disease in Canada and in many countries. When you diagnose syphilis, you have to fill out some paperwork to let health authorities know that there's a case. Many countries want to keep close watch on how the rates are increasing or decreasing in a country. It's really important for public health. And since 1993, congenital syphilis has also been reportable in Canada. Now, many STDs are increasing worldwide. Chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, they're all increasing. But syphilis is increasing at a greater rate. It's really important for us to all be aware of it. In the 90s, the rates of syphilis started to drop. And many countries, including the US, Canada, had all these public health policies that by 2010, they want to have syphilis almost gone in the country. They wanted to have a rate of, in Canada, 0.2 per 100,000 people. That was the rate they wanted. What's the rate now? Well, it's about 12 to 15 per 100,000 people. And so the rates are about 80 times higher than public health authorities were hoping to be at this point in time. And rates of syphilis are increasing in Canada, in Australia, in the US, in the UK, in many countries around the world. So we need to know about syphilis. It's a great imitator. If syphilis isn't treated, it goes on to many stages. And let's talk about these stages just briefly. There's primary syphilis, secondary syphilis, latent syphilis, and then tertiary syphilis. So primary syphilis occurs about 21 days after exposure. It's a pretty big range, anywhere from 10 to 90 days. But the bacteria multiply at the site of inoculation. And again, it's a sexually transmitted disease. And so whether it's acquired by oral, anal, or vaginal sex, you can get a ulcer. And the ulcer is called a chancre. And so the patient gets a single, a single ulcer. It's painless. It often has a rolled edge around the outside of this ulcer. And if it's not treated, 
the ulcer goes away at about three to six weeks. So you have to ask patients, have they had any of these types of ulcers in the mouth, in the genital area, or in the anal area? About 25% of patients that have primary syphilis and aren't treated will go on to develop secondary syphilis. And this is when the bacteria goes into the lymph nodes, goes into the bloodstream, and spreads through the body. And it happens about three to six weeks after this chancre. Most patients have a rash, and it's a, a rash that extends all across the body, especially on the palms, especially on the soles, and the lesions are infectious and they have bacteria. Patients with secondary syphilis are often not feeling good. They have fever, malaise, weight loss, lymphadenopathy. They may have lesions in the mouth, condylomalata. Any of the mucous membranes can be affected. And some of the organs can be infected. They can have meningitis, uveitis, joint issues, arthritis, kidney issues, nephritis, liver issues, hepatitis. But about 4 to 15% of people have hair loss. And again, it can either be moth-eaten or diffuse. So that's secondary syphilis. So what is latent syphilis? Well, latent syphilis refers to a state where patients don't have any symptoms but their serology is positive. Early latent syphilis occurs less than one year after infection. Late latent syphilis occurs more than one year after infection. And for about 70% of people, that's it. But for 30% of people, they go on to develop tertiary syphilis. And that can happen anywhere from a year later to even 30 years later. And tertiary syphilis affects the nervous system, the cardiovascular system, and can affect the skin and bones. Neurosyphilis, cardiovascular syphilis, and gummatous syphilis are what happens in tertiary syphilis. And so you can have all these unusual neurologic symptoms that happen in patients in their 50s and 60s and 70s, and the neurologist will say, I think we have to order a syphilis screen. Similarly, in the cardiovascular clinic or the heart surgery clinic, patients will present with various heart valve issues, aortic aneurysms, aortic insufficiency. And the cardiac surgeon or the cardiologist will say, I think we need to order syphilis screens. It could be due to other things, but tertiary syphilis can cause heart valve issues. We need to rule it out. And so tertiary syphilis is very much an issue many years later, usually. Congenital syphilis is also a really important issue there's a million babies born every year with congenital syphilis. It occurs from the transmission of the bacteria across the placenta, or the baby comes in contact with infectious lesions at the time of birth. The rate of miscarriage is high, and about 40% of mums can have miscarriage because of syphilis. So how do we test for syphilis? Well, there's a non-treponemal test and a treponemal test. The non-treponemal test includes VDRL and RPR, Venereal Disease Research Lab, and Rapid Plasma Reagent. And the treponemal tests include FTA absorption, the fluorescent treponemal antibody absorption test, and the treponemal pallidum particle agglutination test, as well as this enzyme immunoassay test. So we have non-treponemal tests and treponemal tests. For the non-treponemal tests, they're not very specific, but they're generally very inexpensive, 
They detect antibodies against cardiolipin, lecithin, cholesterol antigens. So they're not really all that specific, and you can have false positives. The treponemal tests are specific. So why do we order these non-treponemal tests? Well, they're helpful to screen. Traditionally, they've been easy to get, easy to order, inexpensive. But what's so interesting and helpful about the non-treponemal tests, again, VDRL and RPR, is the levels go up with infection and the levels go down once infection clears. And so you can monitor if a patient's infection went away if the non-treponemal tests come back negative. Treponemal tests stay positive forever, even if the infection's gone away. They're more specific, they're more expensive, they're more time-consuming, although that's becoming a little bit less so nowadays, but they stay positive forever. So if you have a positive treponemal test, it doesn't tell you if the patient still has syphilis. It just tells you they've either had it before or they still have it now. So the levels stay positive. So traditionally, we start with a non-treponemal test like RPR. And if it's positive, we order the treponemal test. That's the traditional sequence. There's also a reverse sequence syphilis screening, which is more common nowadays in many parts of the world, where you order the treponemal test first. And if it comes back positive, you order the non-treponemal test to confirm the positive and to see if the patient is currently infectious. And so these assays are becoming much easier to do, much less expensive. And so these traditionally expensive and difficult to acquire treponemal tests are becoming much easier to find. And that's why this reverse sequence is more common. So who should we screen for syphilis? Well, anyone that is thought to have a higher risk for syphilis. And so the Public Health Agency of Canada has a pretty low threshold for who should be screened. Those individuals having sexual contact with someone with syphilis, uh, men who have sex with men, those who engaged in sex for money, those who have homelessness, injection drugs, these are all categories that Public Health Canada says screening should be done. Those with a history of multiple sexual partners, those with other sexual transmitted diseases, those born to a mother with syphilis, those live, living in countries with high prevalence of syphilis, and those having a sexual partner with any of these risk factors should be screened. So we need a pretty low threshold to be thinking about syphilis, and I think it's important that we consider that in our list of blood tests and really consider ordering these. If you're not sure how to order them, you know, ask a colleague. You can always start out with VDRL or more commonly RPR, rapid plasma reagent. And if they come back, you can order your specific test to confirm. How do we treat syphilis? Well, fortunately, there's not evidence of resistance to penicillin, so penicillin is used. Benzathine penicillin G is used 2.4 million units intramuscularly in primary, secondary, and early latent syphilis. If a patient's allergic, you use doxycycline. For late latent syphilis, you also use benzathine penicillin, but you give three doses a week apart. And if a patient has neurosyphilis, you use aqueous crystalline penicillin, three to four million units every four hours for about two weeks. Now, in some countries, like Japan, the benzathine penicillin G is not available, and so amoxicillin is commonly used, and that's what was used in this particular case. 
uh, and the patient had complete hair regrowth. So we'll leave syphilis now. It's really an important topic for you to be aware of if you're seeing patients with hair loss. Certainly, it's a great, great mimicker. If you don't have it on your list, at least somewhere on your list, you'll forget about it. So let's talk about trichoscopy for a minute. How good are physicians at using trichoscopy? Well, these trichoscopes are these magnification type devices, either polarized or non-polarized, that allow us to see the scalp up close and allow us to see the scalp in different ways than, than you can just with the eye. Trichoscopy is a fascinating area. It really helps to make some diagnoses that you couldn't otherwise. There are specific signs under the trichoscope of alopecia areata, of traction alopecia, of tinea capitis, of lichen plano pilaris, of folliculitis decalvans, of dissecting cellulitis. So it's a really helpful tool to have. And so a study looked at how good are dermatologists and how good are dermatology trainees from the US and Italy in diagnosing hair diseases and nail diseases with trichoscopy. So it was a study of hair and nail diseases. Of course, when I looked at this study, I wanted to know all the hair information, but let's take a look at what this study showed. So there were 50 dermatologists from the US, 50 from the Italy, 50 residents from the US and 50 residents from Italy that were actually invited to complete a survey online. There were seven hair images and six nail images. And all they had to do was tell what they thought the diagnosis was. There were 50 dermatology residents, trainees, that completed the survey and 46 dermatologists that completed the survey. So not everyone cared to complete the survey. Among board-certified dermatologists, the mean familiarity for hair disorders, 63%, was lower than that for nail disorders, at 86%. In other words, dermatologists found diagnosing hair images with trichoscopy to be more difficult than nail disorders. For dermatology resident trainees, the findings were very similar. The mean familiarity for hair images was 63% compared to the mean familiarity for nail images at 76%. And overall, the data was similar in dermatology residents compared to dermatologists themselves. What was also interesting was about one in five of the respondents were unsure or unlikely to use trichoscopy in their practice. They felt that they're just not sure about it. They're just not sure whether they're going to incorporate it as part of their practice. So that's 20%. And so the conclusion here was that dermatologists from the U.S. and Italy who completed this survey had pretty similar knowledge about hair and nails using trichoscopy. There was important gaps. And so there were areas where their diagnostic skills in trichoscopy were not as fine-tuned as they should be. So it's a helpful study that identifies these gaps. Clearly, we have a long way to go to bring up the bar to make sure people are getting 100% scores. But what's also concerning here is that we have 20% of dermatologists and trainees who don't really see a role for trichoscopy. That's kind of unfortunate because of how powerful of a tool trichoscopy is. So clearly, we have a long way to go to convince the world that trichoscopy really is so valuable. But this study really doesn't give a lot of information about participants. We don't really know in this study if the surveyed participants were senior dermatologists and senior residents, 
We don't know if they own 47 books on trichoscopy and have studied 4,000 hours on trichoscopy, or if they're newbies and just started out. We don't have that information in the studies and we, we really need that. If a study was to show that the, the respondents here in this study owned 14 textbooks of trichoscopy on average and have studied over 5,000 hours of trichoscopy and still get 63%, well, what that tells us is trichoscopy is too hard. And no, we shouldn't be training any more dermatologists because it's just too hard. I don't think that's what the study showed. We don't have that information. I think the study most likely would show is that we don't have enough training for dermatologists and dermatology trainees and we need to do a better job. But we need to sort that out. We need to show that with education that the skills in trichoscopy increase. And I think those studies will show that they increase fast. The learning curve is not all that great. There are a number of signs that you see under the trichoscope and voila, you have the diagnosis. It's not that difficult. But I think those kind of training, those types of studies are needed. But nevertheless, I really like this study. So let's move now to some basic studies talking about hair follicle counts. Do the hair follicle counts differ in different regions of the scalp? Is the density in the temples the same as the back? Is it the same as the mid-scalp? Is it the same as the, you know, very frontal scalp? Well, hair counts are really relevant. We need to understand what is normal if we want to understand what is abnormal. This is the most fundamental tenet of all of hair loss, is that unless you understand what normal is, you can't really understand what abnormal is. And so this study looked at hair counts. What are normal hair counts in the scalp? Previous studies have reported that Caucasians and Hispanics have higher hair counts than other uh, racial groups, higher than Asians, higher than those of African descent. And so this study by Rutnan colleagues was a study from Thailand looking at the density in Thai patients. And so they studied Thai individuals, 18 years of age or older, that did not have hair loss. And so they were able to obtain punch biopsies from four different areas of the scalp, including the front, the vertex, or the crown area, the temporal parietal scalp, so not the temples, but the temporal parietal scalp just directly above the ear, and the occipital scalp. So the authors looked at how many follicular units are present, how many hair follicles are present in that little punch biopsy, what are the proportion in antigen phase? What are the proportion in catagen and telogen phase? So 60 patients, four biopsies each. That's 240 biopsies to examine. There were 36 males, 24 females. In this study, median age was, mean age was 39, and their age range was 21 to 82. The highest density, or the highest hair count, was the crown, or the vertex. 23.7 hairs on average in that punch biopsy. In the frontal scalp, there was 22.8. In the occipital scalp, there was 21.4. Those are thought to be pretty similar for the most part. The lowest density was in the temporal parietal scalp. And this again was an area about seven centimeters above the ear canal or the ear opening. So if you draw a line straight up from the ear canal, that's where they were getting these biopsies from. So that's the lowest density area on the scalp. The telogen to vellus hair ratios were the same in all these different areas of the scalp. The percentage of hairs in antigen phase and telogen phase were the same in all the areas of the scalp. 
So the authors concluded that the average number of follicular units and hair counts were higher in the vertex, lowest in the temporal parietal scalp. The antigen to telogen ratios were the same, but and the terminal to vellus hair ratios were the same in all the areas of the scalp. There were no differences in males or females, and no difference according to age. And again, these were patients that did not have hair loss. So I think it's important for us to keep in mind that this temporal parietal area has the lowest density. It's about 20% less than other areas of the scalp. And so if you've ever wondered why when patients start losing hair, whether it's telogen effluvium or diffuse androgenetic hair loss, that there's often a lot of attention drawn to this temporal parietal scalp. It's because it had less hair to begin with. And now when you remove even more hair from that, it can really show up as a concerning area to patients. It's 20% less dense to begin with. The other pearl in this study is that if your biopsy comes back showing that this area of the scalp has a lower terminal to vellus hair ratio than 8 to 1 or 9 to 1, which is what the average was in this study, you shouldn't be saying, oh, maybe this area of the scalp, the parietal scalp or the occipital scalp, maybe it just has a lower terminal to vellus hair ratio. We won't think much of this. No, the terminal to vellus hair ratio is the same in different areas of the scalp. Similarly, if you have a biopsy comes back showing this particular area of the scalp has 18% telogen hairs, you might wonder to yourself, oh, maybe the occipital scalp has 18% telogen hairs. That's just normal. I learned that it's supposed to be 8% or 9%, but maybe the occipital scalp has that high percentage. No. All of the areas of the scalp have the same percent telogen, unless there's something wrong going on. So a really helpful study, and I, I really like this meticulously done study. And so finally, let's turn to a, another basic study. And before I turn to that, let me just say that you've probably heard the philosophical question, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? Well, I've got another one for you. And that is when a hair falls from the scalp and there's not another one around to take its place in the hair canal, does the hair follicle machinery care? And that is indeed what this study looked out to address. This was a study published in Cell, Stem Cell, a very prestigious journal that publishes very high quality basic scientific research. And generally speaking, unless the paper has some fundamental observation that really changes the way we think about the world, it's not going to be published in this particular journal. And so this was published in Cell Stem Cell by Xi and colleagues from China. The finding here is an unexpected one, that as hair follicles get thinner and as the hair disappears from the hair canal for long enough, stem cells start dying in the hair. Xi and colleagues performed studies here in mice, not humans, but in mice. And what they did is they plucked hairs from the mice. And what they found is that when hairs were plucked, that the stem cells started dying. There was apoptosis of stem cells. And as we'll see in a minute, this death required calcium signaling, and it required two proteins, piezo-1 and TNF-alpha. So plucking hairs from mice triggered an increased rate of apoptosis in stem cells. And what the authors did, quite interestingly, is they plucked the hairs 
saw that stem cells died, and then put the hairs back in the canal. Oops, let's put them back in there, see what happens. So they meticulously placed the little hairs back in the canal, and lo and behold, the stem cells stopped dying. Simply putting the hair back in the hair canal saved these stem cells from apoptosis. And so the authors proposed that the hair shaft itself serves as a physical scaffold for hair follicle stem cells. And by virtue of simply being there, the stem cell niche was saved. They went on to show that the plucking of hairs induces calcium signaling. And so they used various fancy techniques to show when you pluck a hair, you get increased intracellular calcium fluxes. And if you block calcium influx with certain medications, you stop the apoptosis or death of stem cells. And they went on to show that this calcium channel protein, PISO-1, was responsible. And so they also showed that not only is this calcium channel protein, PISO-1, responsible, but also the TNF-alpha receptor, or the tumor necrosis factor alpha receptor, is also responsible. And they used mice that had a knockout for the TNF-alpha receptor and showed that, lo and behold, after plucking hairs, if mice don't have TNF-alpha, the stem cells don't seem to die as much. So a really interesting study and an important study that reminds us that the hair follicle re really does care that the hair follicle shaft or the hair shaft is gone from the canal. The hair shaft, for the most part at the end, is, is dead. The more proximal part is, is, is alive. But we often think that it's just this keratinized fiber and when it's lost, another hair can take its place. And that's true, but what happens in states where there's a hair cannot take its place? It seems that that sends a signal to the stem cells that this may not be the right environment to live. And so I think this is important because it opens up some understanding that perhaps during the miniaturization of hairs, that the fact that hairs are thinning also disrupts the stem cells, that they're given signals that this hair canal just isn't propped open with as thick of hairs as it once was. And so I think more studies are needed, but it certainly changes the way we think about this hair canal, that the hair follicles in the hair canal and how propped open the hair canal is really does seem to matter. Again, this was not a study in humans. It was a study in mice, but nevertheless, an important study that we need to think about for the future. And so that's it for this week. We have reviewed seven really interesting studies from the past month or two. We talked about minoxidil and breastfeeding and the fact that minoxidil for the most part is pretty safe in mothers who are breastfeeding. But perhaps there are some situations where we might want to think twice about that or at least delay the timing for when a mother starts the use of minoxidil back up again. And perhaps mums that have uh, premature babies and perhaps babies that are of certain ethnic backgrounds that might be a little bit more predisposed to hypertrichosis, maybe we should wait a little while. Again, more studies are needed, but it tells us that not every baby is going to be um, not experiencing hypertrichosis if mom uses minoxidil. We talked about an interesting finding of mask-induced trichorexis nodosa, and so we have more side effects on the list of mask-related uh, side effects. We talked about pre-pubertal androgenetic hair loss, this type of hair loss happening before age 10. We have to think about it. Not all f children will have strong, strong family histories, but many will. We have to rule out everything else that we were comfortable with and, and really give it some thought. Minoxidil is the treatment. We talked about syphilis and the important topic of syphilis and the fact that syphilis can cause a diffuse hair loss 
and syphilis can cause an alopecia areata like hair loss, so-called moth-eaten alopecia. We have to keep syphilis on our radar of great mimickers. We talked about trichoscopy and the gaps in knowledge that many practitioners still have and the fact that one in five practitioners really don't see the use of trichoscopy. So we have a lot more work to do to convince the world that, wow, trichoscopy is fantastic. We talked about two basic st science studies, one outlining the fact that the temporal parietal area has the lowest hair density on the scalp, the terminal develus hair counts are the same across the scalp, at least in these four regions, and the antigen to telogen ratios are also the same. And we talked about a very fascinating mechanism by which hair follicles sense that there's no little hair in the canal and they undergo apoptosis unless another hair takes its place. And so this is important for future studies to recognize what this all means. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Evidence-Based Hair. We're now at the end of the second month. We've reviewed 31 studies this month, 34 studies last month, 65 studies in total. And I want to give thanks to all those who have been along for the ride so far. I hope these studies have been interesting and helpful to you in your practices or just interesting for you in general to connect with our office, to share your thoughts, or to learn more about our training programs at the Donovan Hair Academy, you can email us at info at donovanhairacademy.com. Next week, we're back talking about androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. That'll be the first Monday of the month of April. We'll start out with phase three studies of baricitinib, the JAK inhibitor baricitinib and alopecia areata, as well as the uh, variety of other very interesting studies from the past month or two. I'll look forward to welcoming you back here on Evidence-Based Hair.